0: From CPRE and the CPRE Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a regular look at new and important research and education. Today, we look at the concept of evidence-based interventions, as states prepare to allocate billions in new funding in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: To me, one of the big challenges with evidence-based policy is that the law is a blunt instrument. We can make people do things, but we can't make people do things well
0: we welcome the University of Pennsylvania's Jonathan Sapovitz and Harvard University's Carrie Conaway. They discuss the evolution and impacts of evidence-based requirements here in the US.
2: So there's an increasingly refined definition from the top. But if you look at this from the local perspective, it's not necessarily playing out as things are designed.
0: And some recommendations for states, districts, and other stakeholders planning for the immediate future and beyond.
1: And to me, if districts could really capitalize on that way of spending their money, we're going to really make a big step forward, both in terms of using the existing research evidence as well as learning from our own work and improving it over time.
0: That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today we're happy to welcome Jonathan Sapovitz, Professor and Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, or CPRI, at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Welcome back to the podcast, John. Great to be
2: here, Keith.
0: We're also speaking with Carrie Conway, Senior Lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and former Chief Strategy and Research Officer. For the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, where she led the agency's Office of Planning and Research. Thanks so much for joining us, Carrie.
1: Thanks so much for including me.
0: So as we speak now in early May, states are preparing to apply for a share of more than $120 billion in education relief funding that was authorized under the American Rescue Plan. In addition to the cost of reopening schools and assessing the pandemic's impact on students, the funding is going to be going toward evidence-based interventions to address student learning loss. And that requirement, that specific descriptor, evidence-based, is something that we've seen before in both the Every Student Succeeds Act and No Child Left Behind. Uh, But the term is not as concrete or even widely understood as many might believe. So to start, I'd like to ask you both, Uh, What does evidence-based mean as it applies to education and interventions?
1: Well, Keith, the earliest form of this was what we saw in the No Child Left Behind Act, which used a slightly different phrase, scientifically-based research. Um, It's famous for having been mentioned over 100 times in the law, and there were lots of places where using scientifically-based research was required. But NCLB didn't define what that meant, and so it really didn't get a lot of traction in terms of impact on policy. And the Every Student Succeeds Act talks, again, lots throughout the uh, law about evidence-based activities, strategies, or interventions. And for the first time, it actually was defined what that meant in federal law. There's four tiers of evidence based on the type of research design. Tier one, which is what they call strong evidence, is randomized controlled trial, so properly designed experiments run by researchers. Tier two or moderate evidence could be Called quasi experimental. It's things like lotteries or match comparison studies. Tier three, which is promising, is correlational studies with controls for selection bias, which is basically any other quantitative impact study. And then there's tier four, which is sort of an under evaluation category. And for tier four evidence, you have to demonstrate a rationale for whatever you're implementing and then couple that with ongoing efforts to examine its effects. And so this is a really significant moment in federal law because this has never before been defined and then further connected to when you may or must use evidence-based activities.
2: And just to add a little bit of color to what Carrie is talking about, so there's an increasingly refined definition from the top, but if you look at this from the local perspective, it's not necessarily playing out as, you know, as things are designed. So there there may be some lag between the notions of what good evidence-based practice might look like and how it's actually used in practice. And just as an example, Ed Week did a poll in 2019 with a representative sample of early grade teachers and asked them what reading programs they used in their classrooms. And of the most commonly used programs, relatively few of them were actually programs that, if you looked, had a research base underneath them.
1: Yeah, and I think to add to that, part of the reason is that these provisions in the law really only have bite for the lowest performing schools and districts, where there's a requirement that they must implement evidence-based interventions. Pretty much everywhere else this wording shows up, it's saying if you spend money on, let's say, class size reduction, you must do it in an evidence-based way, but it doesn't require you to spend the money that way. So probably most classroom teachers have not yet seen a lot of where the evidence-based work would show up in their practice.
0: Looking back through the years, I'm curious what you both think evidence-based requirements have done to our approach to either education policy or education research. Have they altered our approaches at all? And if so, what have we learned from those shifts?
2: Well, Let me start out by saying that it's interesting to note that this stipulation that states and districts, particularly low-performing locales, use evidence-based programs is really a supply-driven strategy. The federal government is trying to inform and give a, a gold star, essentially, to the supply of programs and policies that have some evidence behind them. And this is notable, I think, both because this demand isn't coming from the local consumers who, as we just talked about, have a range of sophistication about how they view evidence-based and also because the market is, is really pretty confusing. In preparation for our conversation this afternoon, I spent a little time going through some of the websites of some really popular programs that I see um, being used ubiquitously. Around the country, and I don't want to mention any of these in detail, but if you look at their websites, their marketing and their presentations of their data are pretty compelling. But from a researcher's eyes, the rigor of the research behind those presentations is often pretty weak. So this tells me that there's a gap between the sophistication of the consumers to actually discern what the market um, might claim to be evidence based and the demand by those who are providing resources.
1: So it's exactly for that reason that I joined the Harvard Graduate School of Education, because we're about to redesign our master's program to require all 650 of our master's students every year to take a course on evidence to help build that demand side and the proficiency with using evidence as part of their work. But, you know, that alone is is not going to really solve the problem here. I think to me, one of the big challenges with evidence-based policy is that the law is a blunt instrument. We can make people do things, but we can't make people do things well. And what we really want districts to do is to consider prior research as they're building out their strategies, but we can't really accomplish that with law. We, we end up with these sort of checkbox approaches. And then on the other side, the available evidence is kind of blunt, too. We have a lot more evidence, um, impact evidence than we used to have thanks largely to the Institute for Education Sciences, but we're still thin in a lot of areas. And a lot of times it's not super relevant to practice. The strongest evidence of impact comes from randomized control trials, but by definition, places that let you run a randomized control trial are a little unusual uh, and not necessarily representative of typical district contexts. And we really don't know enough about why things work. Even if we know whether it works, we don't know why. And that's so crucial for practitioners. So I think when we think of the demand and supply sides. We're coming closer together,
2: but we're not there yet. Carrie, I think that's such an interesting point because I think that the the demand over the last 10 or 15 years with the Institute for Education Sciences and what they will support and fund tend to be programs that have definite boundaries and are easily testable. So it tends to have produced evidence in areas where it's easier to make the distinctions as opposed to some of the more naughty K-N-O-T-T-Y challenges within education that educators are grappling with.
1: Yeah, and it's not really testing interventions of the type that many classroom teachers or districts could just do on their own without a vendor. So we've sort of turned evidence-based policy into vendor-based policy, which isn't, I think, quite what we had in mind.
0: So, as I mentioned at the top, states are going to be making a number of critical decisions in applying for and spending their American Rescue Plan funding, Uh, and requirements for evidence-based interventions and policies are certainly not going to be going away anytime soon. So, given all you've seen and studied over the years, what recommendations would you offer to stakeholders who are planning for this tranche of funding and beyond?
2: Well, let, let me start off with this, and hopefully Carrie can provide some of her experience with the Mass Department of Education. But I, I think that savvy districts are really going to combine this growing uh, knowledge base around um, the What Works Clearinghouse and the Best Evidence Encyclopedia and things like that, which provide you know, information about sort of off-the-shelf kinds of, of programs and interventions Um, But simultaneously, I think that they're really going to be building their capacity to be refining their implementation of whatever they choose to adopt um, through continuous improvement processes. And I think that's a really interesting trend that's going on inside of the field right now because coincident with this effort to increase the amount of evidence-based information about what has worked in other contexts and um, with other in other situations um is also attempting to build the capacity of local district folks and even school folks to continually refine and learn about what happens when they're implementing in their own particular context. so I think it's the convergence of these essential essentially top-down and bottom-up strategies that over time, I think, will will increase the sophistication of consumers as there's more evidence being produced.
1: I totally agree with you, John. And actually, the law explicitly allows for that. It uses the same evidence-based definition as ESSA, and it applies to the part of the funding dedicated to lost learning time and summer enrichment programs. So at least 20% of district spending will be on evidence-based interventions. But to me, the thing that's the coolest is that tier four counts as one of those interventions. Tier four, remember, is the one that's the under-evaluation, try something reasonable and learn from it. And to me, if districts could really capitalize on that way of spending their money, we're gonna really make a big step forward, both in terms of using the existing research evidence as well as learning from our own work and improving it over time. So just to give an illustration of what this might look like, uh, let me tell you about something we did at the Massachusetts Department of Education. Uh, at this point, about 10 years ago, our state changed its law around schools and districts that were the lowest performing in the state are turnaround districts. And the state got a lot more power and ability to intervene in those districts, but there wasn't a lot of available research on what types of interventions might make the most sense. So what we did instead was we made our best bet based on what we could tell from existing research and our own professional judgment, but we set ourselves up in a way that we could actually evaluate the impact and implementation of our programs over time. And so we were able to do both quantitative work comparing the turnaround schools to other similar schools that were not put in that status, as well as looking at the choices districts made about what types of strategies they implemented and what that actually looked like on the ground, what met, what like good implementation looked like versus just average. And in the end, we were able to demonstrate that our taken as a whole, our turnaround strategy was increasing student achievement in those districts by about 0.2 standard deviations a year, which is a pretty large impact as far as a, that kind of a state strategy. And that exact kind of process is exactly what districts could do under tier four.
2: That's a great example.
0: Carrie Conway is a senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And Jonathan Sapavitz once again, is professor and executive director of the Consortium for Policy Research in Education at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. John and Kerry, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRE Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.